Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Welcome to the Christmas season, everybody. How we doing? Good. Woo! Hey, a little louder for the people online so they can hear you. How you doing? There we go. People online, we are glad you are joining us uh, as well. If you're new here, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH. And uh, man, I'm so excited to enter into a brand new series uh, called This Christmas. And, and we were decorating, staff was decorating uh, last, uh, last Tuesday and just putting stuff up. Man, I don't know if I have felt this much like excitement and optimism <laughs> for the rest of the year. It was so exciting just to put like lights up and celebrate something, like just something, like celebrate anything. Um, but even recognizing beyond that, that, uh, man, we have hope in one place and one place alone, and that's Jesus, and that's what we get to celebrate. And so uh, we are excited um, that you're, you're here. But, but in this series, we are obviously concluding what is the, the hardest uh, year, maybe corporately, for all of humanity that we've had in a long time. Um, and, uh, and we want to do our best to try to forget really about some of that fluff that tends to uh, surround Christmas and really do our best to focus in on why it is we celebrate what it is uh, that we celebrate, which is, of course, uh, the birth of Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to give fair warning right now. People online, people in person, people who may be utilizing uh, our cry room or anything like that, if you have a child who does the elf on the shelf thing, and still does the elf on the shelf thing, this is your chance to plug their ears or mute your computer because I'm about to bash elf on the shelf pretty bad right now. Um, just want to give fair warning. Don't want to destroy anything for anybody. But, but for those of you who haven't heard of elf on the shelf, elf on the shelf um, was this great thing that came out maybe six, seven years ago where you get this, this little uh, stuffed elf and you put it around the house each the house each night and then and then during the day the kids find it oftentimes it's the first thing that they do oftentimes they wake up at like five in the morning to find the elf which is exciting for everybody um, that was a joke thank you which in itself, that in itself is pretty fun. Like that in itself, okay, cool. It's like, it's like an Easter egg hunt with one Easter egg for 25 days straight, right? And I guess you could call that um, fun. But the problem is, is the elf had a backstory. The elf comes with baggage that we didn't necessarily know uh, that we were signing up for. And so the backstory is essentially the elf, every single night, once the kids are asleep, of course, flies back to the North Pole to report to Santa on how good the kids were being that day. So you got kids who are acting up. You simply have to be like, hey, our elf is named Jack. Hey, Jack is, Jack is watching you. Just remember, Jack, we have never used that for behavior modification, but people do. That's the backstory. And so then he flies back to the North Pole, reports to Santa everything that's going on, and then flies back, and he is in a brand new spot uh, for that day, that morning. And oftentimes when he comes back, he tends to cause some elf mischief, okay? And so I pulled some photos um, from online. So here's a couple of the things that we've seen before. So there's uh, Woody and Buzz, and they're rescuing uh, the elf, obviously. Uh, there's another one here um, that, it, I don't know if you can read it. It says, please keep clean your room. Tried to go in there and fell and got hurt. Ouch. Jingle, that's jingle. Uh, next one, 
um, is just a, a paper sack race with obviously like a nutcracker, a penguin, and a teddy bear. Totally makes sense. But my favorite one that has come out this year because parents are so done with Elf on the Shelf and quarantine. They're like, hey, Elf is coming back. And for 14 days, sorry, the Elf was in the North Pole. He's got to stay in that jar for two weeks straight. Brilliant. I don't know who thought of it. I wish I would have. Um, because Sarah and I, or I started doing math on the amount of times that Sarah and I were going to have to hide this elf. Because the issue is not starting to do the elf. The issue is, is ending the elf at some point, right? Once you have committed to this, you've committed to it until your kids are out of elven season, right? And so for us who have a lot of kids who span a whole lot of ages, I did the math. By the time that I think we can retire our elf, we will have hidden that elf over 250 times. That's a long-term commitment for a stuffed animal and a lie. It really is. And so when we're talking about fluff, we're talking about things like this. We're talking about things like Santa. We're talking about like all of these things. These are good things. They're not bad things in and of themselves. Okay? They are fine. But when our focus shifts from the fluff of the season, the extra things of the season to why it is that we are from or to that from why it is that we are actually celebrating the season, we're lost. We've lost our focus. Okay? And so this Christmas, which is really why I'm happy with the title, this Christmas, I feel like that we as a, as a people, we need to lean in more than, more than most times that we have in this Christmas season and recognize that, hey, there is an importance here. There is something that we actually need to be looking for and celebrating, which is indeed the hope of the world. It's the only thing that gives us hope, especially in a year, we need to be reminded of that, especially in a year where so many people have indeed felt hopeless, Okay. And so as we do that, I think, I think one of the things that we need to remember um, is, is that as we focus, a lot of us are no strangers to that focus, okay? To focus in some way. Maybe it's not specifically on, uh, on Jesus in the Christmas season or whatever, but all of us, our focus can shift depending on what it is that we're passionate about or what it is that we do. Sometimes for, for some of us, maybe our focus is our job right? And so you know when you get to your job, you're, ac- you're absolutely going to kill it. You get there 20 minutes early, so you can be the first one in the office and turn the lights on, and you get your coffee, and you're sitting at your desk, and you hack through your emails, and then you go talk to the different people and have the meetings that you need to have, and you have your to-do list and your calendar and all that stuff, and you are laser-focused on that. And then there's other, uh, others of you who maybe you're like your thing right now, your focus right now is fitness. And so you're laser focused on fitness, on, on pull-ups and sit-ups and other ups, like all of those different things that you need to do to stay focused on fitness. And there's others of us um, who are very laser focused on like fast food. And you know when you go to get fast food, what it is that you are going to order because you are so laser focused on getting that thing. And so we all have these, these focuses that we do, but really, uh, like as you put your entire life together, you recognize that really you just have a standard that you go through throughout the day. You walk through a day. Pre- a lot of you have had the same breakfast for the last 35 years, and you're okay with your oatmeal and, and brown sugar, like a little sprinkle of brown sugar, not too much, Right? Or your same kind of coffee that you've had for the last 10 years in the same mug that has brown stains on the bottom of it because you don't wash it enough, right? Like we are, like as we are focused on some things as a whole, we tend to just kind of walk through life and go through the day-to-day as well. And so maybe you're a mom right now 
who has kids or a dad who has kids who are doing the distance learning thing, and man, you're laser focused on where that, where that Google Drive folder is and did you press submit on that homework? Because I'm sure you did the homework, but if you didn't press submit, the teacher didn't get your homework, right? Which has never been a thing until this year, okay? I don't know what it is that you're focused on. I don't know, I don't know where that is where, like, in your life, whether it's exercise or fast food or anything like that. This season, though, we need to be aware that we have to be okay elevating out of the other things that we're focused on out of your day-to-day life and be able to focus on the birth of Jesus. Because right now, a lot of us are even doing our best simply to get back to the idea of normalcy. All of us are trying our best to even get back to what our daily grind used to look like. But today, and this Christmas, more than ever, we need to look for the miraculous. So we're going to be walking through the the birth narrative of Jesus. Normally we would flip to Luke chapter 2 to look at that. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 today. So if you have Bibles, you can go to Luke 1. We're going to start in verse 5. It's going to feel like story time with Pastor Peter because we're going to go over a big chunk of scripture right now, but then I'm going to circle back to it and kind of kind of break it down um, after that. But we're not talking about Jesus' birth today. We're actually going to talk about Jesus' first cousins once removed. No? Yeah, first cousins once removed. And a lot of you are thinking to yourself, I didn't know that it talked about Jesus' first cousins once removed in Scripture. But you're wrong. It does. It starts in verse 5. It says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Chosen by lot, they're essentially throwing dice to see who goes, okay? And when the time for the burning of incense came, this is verse 10, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Okay, so we have Zachariah and his bride, okay? Uh, Mary and Elizabeth 
were cousins, okay? Um, and so Jesus' first cousins, once removed, would be Zechariah and Elizabeth. You want to get fun with it, actually, Zechariah and Jesus. Zechariah would have been Jesus' first cousin, once removed in law, um, which, you know, all of you people who have first cousins, once removed in law is how tight you guys are. Um, but more importantly than that, the angel gave six specific promises to Zechariah in this passage. These are what they are. You're going to see them up on the screen. The first one is that your prayers are going to be answered. And we're going to come back to these. But your prayers are going to be answered. Okay? The angel tells him, hey, look, we know you've been praying. And so your prayers are going to be answered. And beyond that, God has been gracious. Actually, the cool thing here, their son, the baby that they conceived, John, that's John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, depending on uh, the, the tradition in which you grew up. Um, but that's John the Baptist. And the name John actually means grace of God. And so for a couple who was really hoping to be able to conceive at some point in their life, the fact that God was gracious to them and then said, oh, by the way, name your son John because it means grace of God. So he says, God has been gracious to you. Um, he, he then, the angel then tells him that, that you and your people are going to know joy and gladness, both of those things. You'll know that joy. You'll know that gladness. Um, it talks about the fact that your child will be great. The angel promises, hey, your kid, he's going to be a great kid. Now, if I could have gone back and an angel would have come to me and Sarah and said, hey, this child is going to be great, I wish I would have known that because I would have liked him more than the other ones. You know what I'm saying? So, just kidding, child who's sitting right over there. Uh, Israel uh, will see national revival, okay? That would have been incredibly important to two, two Jewish people who over the course of the last couple hundred years haven't heard much from God. Um, and lastly, your child is the forerunner to the soon coming Messiah. So he promises all of these things in this very short interaction that we have uh, with Zechariah. And even as we see, like he saw an angel in front of him, and he was terrified, which is the case most time that you see, see anybody interact with an angel, angel of the Lord, interact with God in some way. Like people are freaked out, like legitimately, absolutely terrified, terrified. So even as he saw an angel sitting in front of him, even as he was terrified of said angel, Zachariah at that point doubted and responded by essentially saying, hey, give me more evidence and then I will believe you. Give me more evidence and then I will believe. It's a lot like the Israelites who crossed uh, the Red Sea on dry land. Right? And then when, when Moses, he goes up, this is the book of Exodus, Moses, when he, when he goes to receive the Ten Commandments, he goes up on this mountain for like two weeks, and everybody's like, hey, where'd that dude go? And like, well, he's up on the mountain talking to God. You know, the same God who delivered us uh, from Egypt, the same God who delivered us um, from, from Pharaoh, the same God who delivered us from being slaves, all of those different things. That God, yeah, he's talking to that God. And they're like, yeah, but I don't know. It's been like 14 days. You know what we should do? We should get everything that's gold and melt it down and worship that. All right, sounds good. Let's do that. Right? It's the same thing that these people are asking. They forgot about God. It's like the rich man who begged Abraham to send Lazarus back from the grave to witness to his brothers because he recognized that he was too late at that point. It's a lot like Thomas. A lot of us know him as Doubting Thomas, the disciple, right? It's a lot like Thomas who demanded more than, more than mere verbal affirmation. He wanted visible evidence from Jesus that it was actually him. All of these are cases in which people demanded more evidence than the plain promises of God. All of them. And really, it, it, and, and, like on one hand, it's hard for us to blame them. 
right? For us, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. So a lot of time we can look back at this and be like, bro, you were looking at an angel. Like, why didn't you make a better decision than that? Uh, or with Thomas, it's like, Jesus is literally standing right in front of you and you can see holes in his wrists. Like, pretty sure you don't need to touch those holes or demand more than it. Like, for us, it's easy to say that. Right? But when you, when you really think about it, these people, they are used to a present reality. All of us are. We are used to our schedules. We are used to our routine. We are used to being focused on different things. Every single one of us are used to that kind of present reality, their day-to-day normalcy. Their expectation was not for the miraculous. Their expectation was for the mundane. In the same way that every single one of us have an expectation of a normal day. Right? A mundane day. Hey, if I can get through the day and 2020 doesn't throw like aliens at us, cool, I'm good. Like I will take the mundane right now. And so that's where a lot of us are. That's where these people, this is the present reality that they are, that they are facing. Just a day-to-day mundane, you know, everyday thing. And on the other side, it's really hard to blame them because all of us have been on one side of those promises before, right? Where someone is like, hey, look. I'm going to do this for you. In the back of your head, you're like, man, okay, sure. I, I'll, believe, I'll believe that when I see it because I don't, I don't necessarily believe you. That's essentially what Zachariah said. I'll believe it when I see it. But he didn't just say it to like a person that he didn't trust. He said it to an angel that he was terrified of. And I don't want to knock Zachariah too bad or anything like that. But, but legitimately, he was searching for more evidence. The words that the angel spoke to him weren't enough. And it's times like these that we need to remember, and I know this is New Testament, so Zechariah wouldn't have been privy to it, but 2 Corinthians 5-7 tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. So if an angel of the Lord appears to you and says, hey, like God told me to tell you this, like we walk by faith, not by sight. So I think that what we need to do during this Christmas season, this Christmas, is to prepare for the miraculous. I think we need to focus in to be able to prepare for the miraculous, to prepare for the fact that, hey, this is a celebration of something miraculous happening. So how do we prepare for that? Great question. Let's look at verse 6 again. Verse 6 says this, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Okay, these two people were living a life that was righteous and on call for God. And so for us, we need to live on call for God. Okay, every single service, at the end of the service, we, we pray what's called the ABCs. Okay? It's essentially a profession of faith. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, believe that Jesus went to the cross, died for me, conquered death, and C, choose to follow him every single day. So when we choose to follow God every single day, we're saying, hey, I'm going to be on call for God. This isn't a one-time decision. This is an everyday decision. This isn't even an everyday decision. It's a moment-to-moment decision. It's a decision when your feet hit the floor in the morning, when you're brushing your teeth, when you're driving to work, and how you even interact with people who are driving slowly in front of you. Right? It's a day-to-day decision. And here's the amazing thing about Zachariah and Elizabeth. And I don't want to, because di- I don't want to discredit them completely. And even though Zachariah and Elizabeth weren't uh, weren't seeing anything miraculous at the time. Before the angel, they were still living faithful, godly lives. When this story picks up, Luke 1, man, the Old Testament had been closed for 400 years. 
This is what we call for you people who are taking notes, the intertestamental period. 400 years of silence from God. And so these were people who were of the Jewish faith who were like, hey, we haven't heard from a prophet in like 400 years. We haven't seen any miraculous signs. And if they did, they didn't write about them. So it's possible, but nothing was written down, right? There were no significant miracles to speak of, no angelic announcements or anything like that. So nothing crazy was happening for 400 years that had never happened in the history of time before this. And so think about how long our country has been around and then add about 150 years to it. That's how long silence had happened here. They hadn't heard anything from God yet. Here we have two servants who are just going to faithfully honor God with their lives. Why? Because that's what the word told them to do. They recognize that, hey, I am going to follow the teachings, follow the teachings of the law, be obedient, be faithful to those things every single day. I'm going to be on call for God. So the question is then for us, when there is no fanfare, when nobody is watching, when there is very little to kind of look forward to tomorrow, do we continue living faithfully for God, ready to respond to any moment? When no one else is watching, I had, a, uh, I had a gym teacher, PE teacher. We didn't really have a gym. It was our cafeteria. Um, we had a PE teacher uh, when I was in junior high. His name was Mr. Stikes. Um, great guy, Mr. Stikes. Classic PE teacher. I actually really enjoyed his class, but his shorts were always a little bit too tight and a little bit too short. You guys know what I'm talking about, PE teacher, right? Um, but up in Mr. Stikes' classroom, on his wall, there was a saying that said, character is doing what is right even when no one is watching. You guys have probably heard that quote before. And so real quick for you teachers who put like inspirational things up on your wall or I guess right now it's like on your PowerPoint for people to see and that sort of thing. It works. I read that stinking sign every single day until it was beaten to my brain what character was. Didn't mean I did it, but I understood it. Okay. Very important distinction there. And I'm not saying, hey, we need to be people of greater character. I'm saying what we need to do is actually live the way that we have said we were going to live. If you have said yes to Jesus, you have said, I am going to be on call for him. I'm going to be on call for Jesus in my life, regardless of who's watching, regardless of who's around, regardless if I'm by myself or around 500 other people, which you would be out of compliance if you're around 500 other people. But regardless of where you are, are you actively on call for God even when nobody is watching and ready to respond at any moment? Okay, this can be hard for a lot of Christians, be hard for pastors in particular, right? And maybe you as well, but it can, be, it can be hard to separate kind of the work parts of my Christianity from the personal parts of my Christianity. That's a difficult thing because when I study for a message and I prepare for a message, that's vastly different from when I'm reading my Bible for my own edification. Those are two very different things. But then I have to think to myself, okay, yeah, I was in the Bible today. I mean, man, I was in the Bible for like three hours today. Yeah, but what was that actually for? Was it for my job and it's because I'm what I'm, it's what I'm supposed to do? Or was it for because of the fact that I said yes to Jesus and I'm going to be on call for him? I'm going to be prepared for him. Okay, that can be incredibly confusing for me. It can be incredibly confusing for, for maybe, maybe you serve here. Maybe you're just coming here on Sunday morning. Maybe join us online on Sunday morning. And you're like, you know what? On Sunday morning, I come in and I'm happy and I smile and, and I say, hey, brother, how are you? How can I pray for you? 
you know, and you're doing the thing, and it's great, and that's good, and that's awesome, as long as all of those things that you are doing, you are continuing to do, not just on Sunday morning. Regardless of the fanfare, regardless of who's watching, are you on call for God? Hey, maybe it's you're serving here. All right, maybe you're a greeter, or maybe you're serving back in our kids' ministry, or maybe, you know, you're, you're serving in the office or whatever, wherever it is that you're serving. And you do a great job. You show up and you serve. You're killing it. You're doing absolutely incredible. But then the issue is, is that you, learn, then you leave and you don't serve anybody else for the rest of the week, regardless of who's watching. Are you on call? Regardless of the fanfare. So when no one is looking, are you interested in serving God? We have to be willing to be on call all the time, both in and out of season is what scripture says, which leads us to the fact that we need to refuse to let ministry become mundane. Let me tell you what that means because oftentimes when we think of ministry, we think of that idea of ministry, we think of, oh, when you go to the church and you do things at the church and you serve in the children's ministry or you're counting money in the office for us or whatever it may be, Okay? We think of ministry as like those really organized ministry things that we do. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about here. Each and every one of you have a personal ministry. We call those ministry, that ministry our oikos. Okay? Oikos, 8 to 15 people who are in your life that you're responsible for. God has supernaturally and strategically placed them there. And it's your responsibility to be able to make an impact for those people in the kingdom of God. Don't let that responsibility become mundane. Okay? Let's look at verse 8 real quick. It says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, so I got to give you context here, okay, because alone we're like, okay, he's a priest. He went to the temple. He's burning some incense. Sounds relatively normal. Okay, in Israel, okay, in this time, the Jewish faith, there were approximately 20,000 priests, okay? Those priests, don't think of them like myself or Jeff or Kyle or anybody like that. Don't think of them like that, okay? These priests were people who lived lives, who had work outside of the church, outside of the temple, right? They did other things, but then they were called on a couple times a year to be able to do priestly duties, Okay, so you guys know anybody who may be a bivocational pastor or that sort of thing? Think more of that realm, but even less. There, we're talking probably two days a year for about eight hours a day. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about priests, okay, being, being a part of the priesthood. So there were approximately 20,000 priests divided into 24 courses of ministry. Each served eight, uh, uh, two eight-day periods. I, I said hours. I apologize. Two eight-day periods of time during the year. Each course consisted of about 830 men. Okay, so we're talking 20,000 people here. And the way that they figure out who is going to go burn the incense, they throw dice. Okay, they pray over them and they cast lots is what it's called. Okay, and so what we need to recognize here is that, is that this really is, for Zechariah, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity this wasn't like, hey, you got it this week? Cool, I'll do it next week. No, this is a once in one in 20,000 opportunity for him to be able to do this. Once in a lifetime opportunity for him. It was an incredibly special occasion. But it was absolutely nothing 
compared to what God wanted to do in that once-in-a-lifetime moment. Two different things. But Zechariah, he got so into the moment, so into the momentum of doing his, doing his duty, his priestly duty that he was supposed to do on this specific day because he had agreed to do this specific thing. He got so, so wrapped up in that that he fails to realize the, the significance of the experience. So he's like, yeah, this is great. Yeah, this is great. I'm doing my priestly duty. I'm doing my thing. We do that every single day. We wake up. We get our coffee. We eat our oatmeal. We drive to work. We do all of these things like, man, I had a great day at work. I got the opportunity. Whatever. Fill in the blank. And oftentimes what happens when we get so wrapped up in that mode of doing the things that, we, that we're supposed to do, oftentimes the things that we get excited about doing, that we can miss that experience, that once-in-a-lifetime experience, the significance that there is. Ministry, if we aren't careful, may become mundane to us. The responsibility that you have in your life for those people in your life is a massive responsibility. Do not let the miraculous become commonplace. Think back to when you first said yes to Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus. Think back to when you first said yes to Jesus. Most likely, it is a time that you, you if you were old enough, that you remember very well. It's a time that's kind of like surrounded by like, man, that is when, that is when I absolutely went all in for Jesus in my life. I remember the time. I remember the moment. I remember who I was with. I don't remember the prayers that were prayed, but there was a lot of crying happening. Right? Like we remember those times. That is your responsibility to help other people come to that conclusion, to tell them about Jesus. That is your responsibility. Do not let ministry become mundane. You know, maybe it's simply you're coming and serving here. We're talking about, you know, the organized ministry, church ministry stuff. Don't let become being a greeter become mundane. You know, people make a decision whether or not they're going to stay at church in the first seven minutes that they're here. Seven minutes. Not stay like that Sunday, but like if they're a new person, first seven minutes they've already made up their mind about whether or not they're going to come. So really, it, does, it doesn't matter what I say up here to that new person. They've already made a decision. So what's our responsibility then? to make sure as those people are coming in that they feel welcome, they feel warm, they feel like this is a place that, that they could get to know a little bit. Do not let ministry become mundane. doesn't matter if you're a greeter, if you're an usher, you sing, you sing with the worship team, you help our kids out, you're on the diaconate, whatever it may be, do not let that become mundane because it's a massive responsibility that all of us have. It is so easy to forget about the importance of that responsibility. The next thing we need to make sure that we're continuing to do to prepare for the miraculous this Christmas is to keep praying. Keep praying. In verse 13, it says this, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So here's another great thing, little, little nugget uh, that we need to notice about Zechariah is that his prayer had been heard, which means he was what? He was praying, right? Your prayer had been heard. He kept praying in spite of the lack of an answer. He kept praying in spite of that fact. Even though he and his wife were well beyond childbearing years, he kept praying for a child. 
And he may have doubted the answer, but at least he had been on his knees in prayer, praying with persistence. And you know this was a burden that was on their heart. You can see at the very end of the passage in verses 24 and 25, when Elizabeth just, I mean, this is a burden that is lifted off of her because of the fact that she was able to conceive a child. This was a huge deal back then. To be able to produce offspring offspring was a massive deal. And so she even says, God, thank you for, for relieving this disgrace from my life. This was a burden on them, a massive burden on them. And so they went to prayer over and over and over again. If you're looking to know like more about prayer and that sort of thing in this season, we just finished up a series called The Heart of Prayer. We focused a lot on the Lord's Prayer, what it means, what God was telling his disciples to pray when he preached and that sort of thing. It's online. Go back and listen to it if that's where you're struggling. That's a great place to be able to start. Um, But the next thing we need to do in order to continue to prepare for the miraculous is believe that God's word is enough believe that God's word is enough. This is in verses 18 to 20. It says this. It says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? That's where the doubt is. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man with my wife. I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I really wish at this point that Gabriel would have made like a little finger gun and a zap would have come out of his finger and it just silenced Zachariah's mouth. I'm pretty sure that's not how it happened, but that's how I'm going to think it happened right now. Yeah, because of the fact that really as these words were coming out, as, as Gabriel was speaking these words to Zachariah, he was like, nah, I don't, how can I be sure? How can I be sure of this? I know you're telling me. I know you're a big terrifying angel. I know you're representing God. But how can I be sure of this? You know, Jesus, in his, fast forward to Jesus' ministry, Jesus condemns the religious leaders of his day because they demanded a sign. The problem is not that they were seeking to know God's will more assuredly. That's not what was going on with Gabriel here. He wasn't seeking to know God's will more assuredly. Rather, they, were, they, were dem- they demanded more evidence than God's very own word. This is Zachariah's crime. He wanted more evidence than what God had already told him, the good news that Gabriel was bringing. You know, he hears that message of God through Gabriel, and he demands more. Give me more. You know, a lot of times we... We hear and we understand what God is saying about something, but we won't believe it until we hear more. We demand greater evidence than what God is willing to give. And we got to learn the simple truth that God's word is enough. His say is the final say. You know, as a pastor, one of the questions that we get quite a bit is, how do I know what God's will for my life is? It always is like this very like mystical question. Everybody's like, man, how do I, how do I know what God's will for my life. And it's really, honestly, it's a really simple answer and it's a really unimpressive answer um, because I wish I could just like pray over somebody and be like, boom, you're going to be a used car salesman, right? Like it's not usually how it works. Um, the, the really unimpressive answer is, hey, read God's, read God's word and recognize that that's enough. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Awesome. Open the Bible. It tells you in there what God's will for your life is. It tells you what it is that you're supposed to do on a daily basis. Everything you need to know 
to understand God's will for your life is already written down and getting dusty on your shelf. Everything you need to know. And maybe later on, if you're confused about a decision that you need to make in your life, hey, should I be a used car salesman or should I be a new car salesman? Great, then we can have that conversation then. But start by opening your Bible and recognize that you have chosen to follow Jesus already. You have already said yes. And so as you have already said yes, your responsibility is to recognize that what this word says you are supposed to do. It's not just like advice. It's not just like when you're like, hey, God, what do you think? And I think oftentimes that's tend to, that tends to be how we treat it. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, I know God has a plan for my life. Cool, I'll take that. That's going to be my nugget for the day, which is fine. But we are also called to do things, the things that the Bible tells us to do. But so often we just want more than that. We want more than that. Well, the Bible, I know the Bible doesn't say it clearly, so I'm going to go through this study. But one study didn't say it clear enough, so I'm going to do another study. Another study didn't say it good enough, so I'm going to talk to my friend who I think knows Jesus and get their input. And on and on and on. We want more and more and more evidence to be able to back up what it is that we already should know and trust, which is God's word. It's kind of like kids, right? I don't know if you've had multiple, multiple kids. Um, like the first kid, He's, he's, I say he because I just have boys, um, so I assume all kids are boys. Um, but our first kid, uh, who's also the kid who's sitting in here with us this morning, um, really, I mean, you like lay down the law with the first kid. They're always the driven one because it's like, oh, our kid's going to be the smartest kid in the world. He's the first kid, right? And so when you ask him to do something, it's always like, yes, sir. And like he, he bows, you know. Um, looks you square in the eyes, yeah, you know. Um, and so he's like best behavior all, like all the time. Never, ever has he ever done anything bad in his life, okay? <laughs> then you have a second kid, and the second kid recognizes like, hey, there's no way mom and dad can push on us as hard as they push on the first kid. And so because of that, I'm going to try to bargain a little bit more. I'm going to be like, like, Dad walks in, hey, hey, bud, it's time to turn off technology, you know, start getting ready for bed. But dad, you're right. Okay, take five more minutes. I didn't give you fair warning and then shut it down, right? And so that's the second kid. And then you get all the way to kid number five, if you've ever been blessed to have kid number five, and you're just like, you're hoping he's eaten at some point during the day, okay? But there's this bargaining that tends to happen of like, give me a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more. It's never, hey, my word, done, period especially with kids, but even with us, we tend to treat God the same way. Like, hey, we open up his word, ah, well, give me a little bit more. I'm going to read five commentaries on that before I make my decision, which is fine. Do your research, read, do all of those things. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to trust God's word and recognize that that's enough. Recognize it's enough for you to live a life that is well lived. And Zechariah was unwilling to believe in the clearly revealed word of God, specifically concerning his future. He wasn't able to, to, to just believe what God's word said, and this is God's word from the angel Gabriel. The question is for us this morning is, what is it that you have believed about God's promises to you and your eternal life, about your future, where it is that you are going one day? And this Christmas, I think we've got to lean harder into it than we have in the past. I think there's an entire world, and some of you may be sitting right here, who feel hopeless right now. 
who don't understand, who are scared, who don't, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what 2020 is going to throw at us. I just heard there's like a hundred something dormant volcanoes under Antarctica. That would be a great conclusion to 2020 if Antarctica exploded. Right? Like we just don't know. And so people are fearful. People are hopeless right now. And so this Christmas, I am asking you to lean into the idea of the miraculous because the miraculous is what brings us hope. That's what brings us hope. And we as the church have to continuously go back to what it is that we do or don't believe regarding the miraculous. Man, from the outside, like for people who don't believe in Jesus, who, people who don't go to church, who haven't been exposed to like Christian culture or anything like that, we're weird. Like we are weird. Like the things that we believe are weird. Like celebrating Christmas for what Christmas actually is, is weird. Why? Because we're celebrating a lady who is a virgin that God impregnated. That's weird. And then he was born in a barn. Like hold on, you're telling me the Savior of the world was born in a barn? Like that's a joke. It's literally being born in the barn is a joke. Right? And then you get to even crazier side of the miraculous things that we believe, which is the end of Jesus' life. They were saying, yeah, Jesus came, but really the only reason he came and was born to a virgin Mary was so he could die. So that, wait, your God came to earth so he could live and die. Yep, and, but, but he's not going to stay dead though. No, after three days, he's actually going to come, come back to life. And then there's all these disciples going to be standing in a room and the doors are going to be locked and Jesus is just going to appear. Like, these are the things that are written in his word. So in order for us to recognize This season, this hopeful season, we have to recognize that everything we believe hinges on the miraculous. All of it. If the Bible isn't telling the truth about Jesus, throw it out. It's not just a book to tell you how to live well. Is that part of it? Yes, it is telling us about the miraculous story of the Savior of the world. And there's not a lie in it. And it's our responsibility as a church to know those things, to know the miraculous things. But in order to do that, we need to continue to go back to the idea that there is a lot of fluff surrounding this season, like elves and Santa, which, to be fair, good, great. You want to do elves and Santa? Do elves and Santa. We do the whole thing. Those things aren't bad in in and of themselves. But as soon as we make Christmas about that and only that and we forget about the miraculous and substitute the mundane, we've lost focus on what Christmas is supposed to be about, the hope of the world, about Jesus. And so today we get the opportunity, it's the first Sunday of the month, our tradition is to be able to to take communion together. We're going to receive communion together. I'm going to invite the band out on the stage. Um, And what we're going to do, if you need communion elements and you're in person with us today, throw your hand up. We have uh, some ushers who will come around. They'll take care of you. If you're at home, now will be a great time for you to be able to get your communion elements ready. But really what we're going to do is the band is going to come on the stage right now and the band in just a second is going to play a song. And this song is all about Jesus coming to earth, sacrificing himself, willingly sacrificing himself so we could be forever in the presence of God. We could be forever in the kingdom of God. And I want you to recognize in this time, just think about the fluff that is surrounding your seasons. They're going to play, I'm going to pray. We're going to do a song together where I just want you to focus, measure yourself. Where are you right now? 
and your need to focus in on this Christmas. And then after that, we'll take communion together. But why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you. Um, we thank you for your son. And we thank you for the fact that heaven has indeed come down. That you recognize it. And that, that you simply loved us enough to, to give us a way back, to want to give us a way back. And so you decided to send your son in the most miraculous way that no one would have ever thought of in a million years. To break up the mundane, to recognize that we live for something way greater than going to work, coming home, and repeating that process. That we live for something way greater than just trees and elves and Santas. Now we live for your son, that we should be on call for him, that your word is enough for us, God. Lord, I pray that we would prepare our hearts for the miraculous this season because you sent your son and we get to celebrate that. Father, if there's those who are here or online who maybe have not yet said yes to you and want to make that profession of faith. Father, I ask that we just pray along with me, the ABCs that I mentioned earlier, to say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And God, sometimes it's, it's out of selfishness and sometimes just force of habit. And I'm not thinking, thinking about you. And I don't know what your sin issue is, but maybe it's what we talked about today. Just the idea of having too broad of a focus on just our day-to-day lives. And focusing on the mundane rather than on the miraculous. So Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, but B, I believe that you sent your Son to die on the cross and conquer death for me so I can be with you in eternity and the way that he came into the world and that's what we get to celebrate and Father I pray that see I would choose to follow you every single day that I would be on call for you regardless of who's present regardless of what's around that my commitment is not to my image towards other people that my commitment is to you and to you alone to do what is right even when nobody's watching. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.